Welcome to this edition of What's the Score? Let me remind you, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please click the like button wherever you listen to this program. And if you'd like to support this and future programs, I encourage you to become a patron via patreon.com. There'll be details to follow in the middle of the program. We couldn't do the program without our patrons, so thank you. And enjoy today's wonderful podcast. Today's program made possible by patrons like you. Welcome to where we celebrate music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it all covered. We talk to those in the entertainment industry and find out about their favorite scores. You found the podcast, What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank R. Wilson. So sit back, relax, grab a popcorn, and let's see what we'll be hearing today. Recognize that music? Well, it's a favorite of our guest today. Now, he's one of those actors whose name you may not recognize, but whose face is very recognizable. That's because he has over 200 credits to his name. Films like uh, The Curious Case of Benjamin uh, Button, and uh, TV shows like uh, The Purge, NCIS New Orleans, House of Cards, Desperate Housewives, and Treme, just to name a few. He has his own production company and also teaches acting to newcomers in the industry. I could take a long time to tell you everything about this man, but let's hear it from the man himself. I hope all of you will please join me in welcoming Lance Nichols to the program. Hi, Lance. Good morning, Frank. How are you? I'm good and and very excited. As you and I were joking in our pre-interview the other day, it's uh, this is almost like a year in the making. It, uh, yeah, I, I, sometimes I think Lance is kind of like James Brown. He's the hardest working man in show business. <laughs> it's really hard to find a time where he can talk. You so know, anyway, I, I'm really I, delighted you were able to make time for us today. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, I, I was thinking last night that, you know, the two of us trying to get together was almost like trying to pass a bill through Congress, man. You, know? <laughs> hey, you got that right. You that right. Well, as uh, most of my listeners know, I, I always like to find out a little bit more about the person uh, behind the persona, I guess, if you will. So I was hoping maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, uh, growing up and family and school and, you know, stuff like that before you kind of got into the acting thing. Well, I'm a native New Orleanian, uh, born in the 50s, a baby boomer baby. Okay. Uh, the youngest of three. I had two older sisters who were actually quite older than me. One was 16 years my senior, and the other one was 19 years my senior. So oh, wow. I, I was sort of that unexpected baby that, that <laughs> came about. And I remember my mom telling me a story when she found out she was pregnant with me. My sisters came home from school uh, that day. They were about, I think they were 15 and 18 at the time. And she said, 
I need you to sit down because I have to tell you something. So they sat down and she says, I just want to let you know you're going to have a little brother, a little sister. And my oldest sister told my mom, you and daddy need to be shamed of yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised that was shared with you. <laughs> That's now great. Keep in, now keep in mind, Frank, my mom was only 34 and my dad was 40, but I guess in my sister's mind, y'all ain't supposed to be doing nothing at that age. Are you serious? <laughs> she, actually, she actually told my mom, what am I gonna tell my friends? And my mother said, I'm married and have a husband. I don't care what you tell your friends. But of course, after I was born, they were very happy to have a little brother. But yeah, but that, that just shows you the mindset of sexuality in the 50s. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, I mean, that was uh, unprecedented, wasn't it? I mean, uh, you said she was, what, your mom was 34 or something. Oh, geez, my mom was 34. Prime. Yeah, yeah, because when she when she had my sister, she was 16 and 19, respectively. Oh well, you know, uh, girls got married very young back in the day. True. So they literally would go from their parents' house to their husband's house. So that wasn't unusual, but I guess there was such a long gap between my sister right above me and me, you know, I guess in my mom's mind and in my sister's mind, it would just be the two of them. But anyway, I came along in 1955. And as I said, I was the youngest of three. So my older sisters were more like a second mother to me than an older sister. Uh, my sister right above me moved away to Los Angeles in 1959. So it was just me, my mom and dad and my older sister here. Uh, I did public school here in New Orleans, went to Robert R. Moton in the, in the Desire Project for first through third grade, fourth through sixth grade, went to McDonough number six, junior high, Samuel, Samuel J. Green Junior High School. And then I went on to McDonough 35, where I graduated in 1973. So after I graduated, I went to UNO. Now, okay. when I started at UNO, I was a pre-med major hmm. because in my mind, I really felt like I wanted to be a doctor. In fact, I wanted to be a pediatrician because I really enjoy working with kids. So in my freshman year at UNO, I was taking a lot of, uh, you know, general degree courses, but I also was taking stuff like Latin and, and, and biology and things of that nature and, and math and stuff. But I also was taking a Drama 1000 class because I did have an interest in, in theater at the time. Mm -hmm. Well, at the end of my freshman year, Frank, I looked at my leisure card and I looked at my grades and said, I don't think this doctor thing is going to work out. <laughs> so because I was barely hanging on at the end of my freshman year. Yeah. So at the so I switched majors at the end of my freshman year going into my sophomore year. I switched from pre-med to drama communication. And in one semester, my GPA went from a 2.4 to a 3.8. <laughs> and, and I realized, well, you know what? I don't have to be a doctor. I can just play as many doctors as I want to. <laughs> Which you have done. <laughs> Which I have done quite, quite well, quite yes. well, I must say. So uh, I graduated from UNO in the summer of 77. Uh, started working two days later at UPS. Uh, I, I had an early morning shift, 5 a.m. to 9 a.m. I used to load the delivery trucks, which, which at the time probably I was probably in the best shape I've ever been in in my life. And I did that for a year. 
working at UPS. And then I realized that if I really wanted to pursue this acting thing, I needed to make a move. And so I had to either go to New York or LA. I honestly wanted to go to New York because I was, at that time, I was thinking more about getting into theater. But I didn't know anybody in New York. And I was told that New York was not a place to go and not know anyone. I didn't know anyone. I didn't have any family there. I didn't know anyone in the industry. But my sister, who I told you had been living in Los Angeles in 1959, I called her and said, look, I'd like to come out there to LA to pursue a career as an actor. And I'm wondering if I could stay with you temporarily. And so she said, yeah. So in November of 1978, packed all my things, hopped a plane and moved to Los Angeles. And uh, what I thought was going to be like a six month stay with my sister turned into a two month stay because going into the second month, she pulled me aside one day and said, look, I'm gonna be filing for divorce from my husband and I, I don't think it's a good idea for you to be here when I do. So within two months of moving from here to L.A., she helped me find an apartment and I was on my own. Wow. Well, I, that, that was going to be one of the questions that I wanted to follow up and ask because. And, and other people can certainly learn from this or certainly relate to it. That's that's a bold move when you think about it. You're going to pick up your life based on a dream that, you know, something that you want to do and you know you need to go to place X in order to accomplish it and uh, and just pick up and, and do that. And, and at least you had a support system out there, sounds like, for a short time. So uh, it, when you look back at it, it was like, wow, I can't believe I had the guts to do that. Or uh, just kind of tell me a little bit about what your thinking was of making that bold step. Well, you know, in retrospect, Frank, I'll put it this way. Either I was too stupid or too stubborn <laughs> not to realize what I was doing. But, I, you know, once I decided that I wanted to be an actor, um, I never had any misgivings or regrets about making that move. Now, I will say this. Uh, adjusting to Los Angeles was huge because I bet. here I am. Here I am, a southern boy from a, a small city, a city, but a small city. Yeah. And moving into such a, a large metropolis like L.A., it was, it was a culture shock for me. I had a very thick New Orleans dialect when I moved there. Huh. So, so, of course, people were asking me where I was from. Uh, I will say this, though. That dialect really endeared me to the ladies in Los Angeles. <laughs> they always wanted to say, ooh, say my name again. So I would say their name. Ooh, t say this. Ooh, that sounds so cute the way you say it. So once I realized that uh, my dialect was endearing me to the ladies, of course, I played that up, you know. Oh, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Any, 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 uh, any man would. <laughs> any, any advantage I could get, man. <laughs> This program is also about film music, and so I want to kind of get into that. You had some interesting choices, uh, ones that we've not uh, featured before, which I'm happy about. That's great. I always want to expand what our listeners get a chance to see. Um, in the 70s, and you and I were talking about this, and I don't know why I can't say this word, but there, the, the, there, was, there was a time in the 70s when black culture was being exploited in, in cinema. Uh, 
how is it pronounced again? Black, black, black exploitation. Black, black exploitation. Yeah. Okay. Yes, it's a combination of exploitation and black, right, black, right. black exploitation. And it was, and it was like a, it was a really hot thing. And and one of the films that came out as a result of that uh, culture shift was a film called Superfly. Uh, and you wanted to feature a couple of cues from that film today. Uh, these are. Uh, uh, this is music that's written by Curtis Mayfield, and so I was hoping you could share with our listeners a little bit about why you wanted to choose that amongst uh, some of your favorites to play today. Oh, absolutely. Well, Superfly came out in 1972, and I was a 17-year-old teenager at the time. And, of course, you know, during that time, there weren't many role models for us as African-American teens in terms of cinema. Right. Uh, you know, we, of course, we had, you know, Sidney Poitier, who was a great role model. But then um, then in the late 60s, early 70s, there was a genre of filmmaking that came into play called black exploitation films. And most of them, unfortunately, dealt with uh, uh, the glorification of either being a drug dealer or a pimp uh, in poor neighbor inner city neighborhoods. Superfly was was different in this sense that even though it dealt with the, the main story was about uh, a, a guy who was a cocaine dealer, but who was trying to get out of the game. It also dealt with the ramifications of people who were strung out on drugs and the effect that uh, junkies had on a community. Uh, so. But these two tunes that I like the audience to take a listen to are two of my favorite. Little Trial Running Wild is actually about a, a kid who's fatherless, whose mother is raising him by herself, but his mother is a junkie. Mm. And, uh, you know, he's pretty much on his own, yeah. fainting on his own. And uh, the lyrics are, are just, just wonderful. Um, but I'll let your listeners take a listen to it. And then if you have any questions when we come back, uh, I'll be happy to answer them. And the other cue, because I'm going to play them back to back, is uh, uh, Give Me Your Love. So tell me a little bit about that. Give Me Your Love was also from the film Superfly. It was also written by Curtis Mayfield. In the film, the lead character, Priest, becomes romantically involved with uh, a woman and uh there's a scene which i still remember to this day there's a there's a sex scene that takes place in a bathtub filled with bubbles <laughs> and i was 17 when i watched this movie i don't know how to, i don't know how the hell i i don't know how the hell i snuck in but i got in <laughs> and i still remember that scene to the day and i gotta tell you i gotta tell you a quick story sure. so the woman who the lady who was the his co-lead was an actress named sheila frazier so when I moved to L.A., uh, oh, this had to be back in the 90s sometime, I had gone to a commercial audition, and it was, a, it was a couple thing. And when I get to the audition, guess who I'm paired up with? Sheila Frazier. Oh, my god! And, you know, I'm about, I'm, I'm about to pee in my pants. Man. <laughs> so be, before, we go in and the, before we go in and read together, I said, excuse me, I said, I, I have a confession to make. I said, uh, I was a huge fan of the movie Superfly. And she went, oh, God. I said, I got to tell you, with all respect, I still remember that bathtub scene. And she started just laughing. 
and 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 I was 17 years old when I saw and it. And I was I mean, 17 would... years old. Yes, and and I'm and I'm quite a bit older now, but I still remember that. Yes. Oh my gosh, that's great. That's great. Well, now, did you get the part? No, you know what? I don't think either one of us got the part. But but, but, but both so... of these songs, both of these songs were written by Curtis Mayfield, and they're both. They both feature a lot of strings. You'll, the, your listeners will hear a lot of strings, a lot of violins, and a lot of congas. There's a lot of African rhythms, particularly in, in Little Child Running Wild. Okay. Well, let's have a listen for ourselves. Uh, this, again, is from the film called Superfly, and it's written by Curtis Mayfield. Let's have a listen.
you spent a lot of years um, in Los Angeles pursuing your career, and you started to experience some success. I mean, looking through your uh, uh, your credits, I mean, it's amazing the amount of, uh, in particular, television shows that you ended up booking while you were out there. I mean, it, uh, that must have been an exciting time for you. It was. I, I actually lived in L.A. for 25 years, hmm. and... Um, I did a lot, lots of television in the 80s and the 90s. I started off doing half-hour sitcoms. And, of course, at that time, whatever you started off doing, that's what, you know, that's what they thought you were good at and that right. you could only do that. But just about every major sitcom that was on the air in the 80s and 90s, I did at least one episode. A couple of them I did, uh, uh, a couple of those sitcoms I did, more than one episode but uh but and you know and the, the nice thing about sitcoms sitcoms were shot in front of a live audience and so what they would do is you would uh they would have the set on a sound stage and they would bring the audience in and they would sit them like in bleacher type seatings right but they would be above them so they could watch the action either live in front of them or they could watch it on the monitor so doing sitcoms was a lot like doing a play. Yeah. And because I came from theater, it was a natural fit for me. And you would do two tapings on a Friday. They'd load in the first audience around four o'clock in the afternoon and you tape in front of that audience. And then they would let that audience go. And then you would have about an hour and a half break uh, where they would have dinner for the cast members. And then they would give you notes because sometimes they would make revisions in certain scenes between the first taping and the second taping. And then the second taping would start around seven and you'd be finished around 8.30. Uh, and then what they would do, they would combine the best takes from the first taping and the second taping. And then that would be the final product that you would see on TV. Hmm. Is there, is there one of those, um, is there one of those, Situation comedies that stands out above the rest as a, as a, a an enjoyable experience, or or maybe you, maybe you thought your performance was the best, or just you, you, your camaraderie with your other castmates was just uh, special. Just oh my, let's see. Uh, one of the ones where I had a lot of fun. If you if you remember, Martin Lawrence, the comedian, had a show on yeah in the nineties called Martin. Oh, yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. I, I played a character called Pa Duke, which was so different from how people are accustomed to seeing me because I, I was sort of like this hip-hop parent. I had a big gold chain around my neck like Flavor Flav. <laughs> I had a, a, a cap on backwards and stuff, and people weren't accustomed to seeing me in an in a urban-type role. So I had a lot of fun doing that, but I also had fun doing them. Um, the, the John Lithgow show, Third Rock from the Sun, mm -hmm. which was a very popular show during that oh, time. Yeah. I also had a lot of fun doing Mad About You uh, uh, during that same period. Okay. I mm -hmm. also had a lot of fun doing the Drew Carey show. So I, the, only, the, only, the only sitcom that I remember where it wasn't a completely enjoyable experience was Cheers. And that was only because one of the series regulars on the show was not a very warm and friendly person. Mm. Uh, and and that, that's it, known it, to it's happen. Weak. 
<laughs> but it's weird because this person left the show at the height of their career, and they never had a career after that. And we can all guess who that is, but we won't go there. We won't. We won't. <laughs> yeah, we won't. We'll just say she's a female. How about that? That's what we'll say. <laughs> that narrows it down. Yeah, no, no, I right, understand. Right, right. Wow. But, yeah, I'll, I'll, I, I will say 99% of all my experiences working in film and television were always very, very enjoyable. Um, you know, and it's really strange, Frank, because I never was, I never felt like I was overwhelmed. I never felt like, oh my God, look who I'm performing with. I always felt like I belong. And because mm -hmm. I felt like I belong, yeah. I wasn't intimidated by whoever was put in front of me. If anything, I felt like I could learn from that person. Yeah, you know, it, 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 Obviously, I, I have nowhere even close to the experience that you do. However, in my limited experience of being on film sets and whatnot, I, I must admit it's a really unique culture and atmosphere of, you know, collaboration and people kind of pulling together and supporting one another. And for the most part, obviously, there are exceptions, but uh, and people having fun and just, you know, there are long days. People have no idea how long some of the days are when you work on these kind of shows and uh, you spend almost more time with these folks than you do with your family or friends. So you better get along or, you know, it's going to be miserable. And for the most part, you do get along, don't you? You do. You do. And the thing about sitcoms, sitcoms are what I call banker's hours. So if you got cast in an episode of a sitcom, you, you worked five days, you'd go in on a Monday, there'd be uh, what they call a table read. Right. And then you'd go, and then you'd go home. And then the next day you would start camera blocking. Uh, and then at the end of that day, you'd go home. And then the third day, they would continue, continue camera blocking. And then you would have what they call in the afternoon, a run through. You'd have two run throughs, one for the producers of the show. And the other run through would be for the network people, which we used to call them the suits. Yeah, right. the, suits the, the suits would come down and watch a run through. And then when you'd come back the third day, which would be Thursday, uh, there'd be some some notes that you'd be given. Uh, some things have been changed, and then you'd have another full run through for the for the for the suits and the producers again. And then Friday would be tape day, so you would work five days. But your longest day that you would be there really would be your tape day because you'd have two tapings. Yeah. It was a great it was a great way to earn a living. And of course, you know, residuals were really good back then. Because there was no such thing as streaming. So all your residuals were based on network runs. And look, man, I, I had a good five or six years where I was able to support not just me, but my family off of residuals. Just residuals, yeah. yeah. Yes. Wow. Let's, um, let's dive back into the music. Um, a, a film, you know, and I, I loved this film that you wanted to highlight. And, and, and I know that some people these days, for some reason, almost want to apologize for a, a, a genre of music that was popular in the 70s called disco. Yeah, I kind of liked it. I really did. And I love it, and I offer no apologies in the hell with those people. All right? well, but, but you know what I'm saying, right? I mean, you Yes, know, I do. I do. But, but, uh, and one film that certainly highlighted, boy, I mean, like big time, was Saturday Night Fever. Uh, and I loved this group, the Bee Gees. They did some amazing work, not only in this film, but obviously outside of it. 
And, and there were a couple of cues from that that you wanted to highlight as well. So maybe tell us a little bit about uh, your your uh, wanting to include that amongst uh, some of your favorites as far as for film music. Well, the 70s, as you know, was party time, Frank. <laughs> we, we had just come out of the 60s with three major assassinations, both of the Kennedys, Martin Luther King, the, uh, the Civil Rights Movement, uh, the anti-war movement, the, the women's movement. So when the 70s rolled around, man, we just, we just wanted to just have fun, dance, and get laid. That's all we cared about. Right? We didn't, yeah, you know I'm telling the truth, too. I, I know you are. I know you are. This is a PG show, though. Oh, my, I'm sorry. No, 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 well, no. No, no, you're right. You're it was. <laughs> I'm so, so you know, we, look, you know, we, we weren't about hate and stuff, man. We wanted to just have a good time. And oh, so, yeah. you know, if you think about it, not just disco, but not, all the 70s music was like party music, man. Yeah, it was good feel point. good. It, it was feel good music. And so the, even though the Bee Gees didn't start disco, disco was around before that. But they took it to a whole different level. Yeah. When when they did the music for Saturday Night uh, uh, Saturday Night Fever, and let me tell you, because I did a little research, they didn't do the music for that show until after that movie was done. When huh. Robert Stig when Robert Stigwood approached them, he said, uh, "Here's a script of a movie that we're going to do. Here's what the movie's about." I need you to write some songs. Hmm. And so they, they, the movie came out and they started writing. And of course, as they say, you know, the, the rest is history, man. I mean, there were so many cuts from that film that went on to, you know, that, that just topped the charts. And of course, that movie made John Travolta a star. Oh, big time. Big I mean, time. you know, prior to that, he he was on Welcome Back, Cotter, and of course, people knew who he was. But that film took him from 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 stardom to superstardom, man, and he never looked back after that. But there's some great tunes in in this in this film, and the two that I selected were Night Fever, right. which is a great uh, dance tune, and the other one was Staying Alive, which was uh, which was the opening song. That image when you see Travolta walking down the street, he has kind of like a little bounce in his step. Right. That's it, the song that's playing there. So it was. I love. It, it was a perfect, wasn't it? A, it, it? It was a perfect molding of, of visuals and music, wasn't it? It was. Yeah. It was. It, it was. It was a perfect vision, and I mean, just the lyrics. I'm really into lyrics, and and I'm I'm thinking about the scene that we're talking about that opening. That opening scene where Travolta is walking down the street and you hear right. him staying alive, and and you hear him saying, "Well, you can tell by the way I use my walk. I'm a woman's man. No time to talk. Music loud and women warm. I've been kicked around since I was born, and now it's all right. It's okay. And you may look the other way. We can try to understand the New York Times effect on man. Whether your brother, where your brother, you're staying alive, staying alive." Feeling the city breaking and everybody shaking. Are we staying alive, staying alive? <laughs> Just great lyrics to that song. Oh, man. yeah. Great yeah. lyrics. Well, let's have a listen for ourselves. This, again, is from the uh, film called Saturday Night Fever. Uh, the two songs we're going to feature 
or Night Fever and Staying Alive, and they're written and performed by the Bee Gees. Let's have a listen.
We'll get back to our program in a minute. This program is done for the love of film and film music, plain and simple. However, it does take a huge investment in time and in fees for me to make the program work for you. I don't sell commercial time and don't really want to on this program. Rather, I'm kind of like a, a public broadcasting station. I need support from listeners like you. For as little as $3 a month, you can help me uh, uh, offset the time spent in putting the program together. Or maybe you just think of it as leaving a tip in the tip jar. Either way, if you can join up, uh, there will be bonuses, like an additional 10 to 15 minute segment with our guest every week, where we'll play additional cues as well as ask uh, some extra questions. And it's going to be only available to patrons. How do you sign up? Well, it's simple. You go to patreon.com slash what's the score, and that's all one word. That's patreon, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash what's the score. Check it out. We'd be grateful for your support. That's patreon.com. brought it up and I, and and you know since I follow you on Facebook I know a little bit about how you feel about this and I, I'd be curious if you would wouldn't mind sharing some of your thoughts on it and, and I had a recent experience um, that helped illustrate kind of what we're going to talk about and w- what I mean is that the the difference of acting for film or ie television versus theater um, I don't know if I, I probably shouldn't ask you what's your preference, but um, how, how, if any, are they uh, in any way, are they different? Maybe they're not. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Well, I'll start off by saying I do have a preference, and theater is my preference, always has been and always will be, because you have the audience right there in front of you. Mm. And when you walk out on that stage, you can feel their energy. And um, you can feel their energy, you can feel their presence. Uh, when you tell that first joke and you get that laugh, or there's a very serious moment, uh, intense moment in the play, and you hear people sniffling because you've touched them on some level, mm. there's nothing like it, man. Now, I, I like film and TV, but I love theater. And every chance I get, I go back on stage, in fact, I did a one man. I did a one man uh, autobiographical play, autobiography play on uh, playwright August Wilson last year, called "How I Learned What I Learned," right. and we premiered it at Portland Stage, and then we brought the show down here to uh, La Petite Theater. One man show. Uh, I was on stage for ninety minutes with no intermission, wow. and it it was the most incredible and artistically satisfying thing I've ever done in my 40, over 40 year career. Wow. And that includes any other theater piece, that includes any film, that includes any TV. 
and of course, you know, I've been blessed to have been a part of some really great films and some really great TV shows, but there's nothing like theater, man. And the difference in doing theater and film and TV is in theater, you're playing to a very large audience. So there are people sitting in the back of the theater. Yeah, some theaters have a balcony. So you really have to project. Right. You have to really sort of incorporate your entire body and whatever it is that you're doing or saying. In film, whether it be TV or film, that camera is right in front of your face. And so all you have to do is just tell the story. All it's a little it's a story. little more subtle, isn't it? I mean, my experience was very recently, I'm, I'm very proud of this because I was scared to death to do it. I, I uh, There was a play adaptation of uh, Shawshank Redemption uh, that I was in, and I played the warden. It was a pretty major part. And, of course, I looked at the script and, and loved it, but I thought, oh, my God, how am I going to remember all these lines? And then, uh, and, and then um, as you mentioned, and I used to make fun about it a little bit, that in theater we have to project, <laughs> uh, you know, and, 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 you know uh, as opposed to in front of a camera. So, I mean, there is a... There is a difference, isn't there? You need to be a little bit more reserved, I guess, if you will, for the camera. And and in theater, you do need to be a little bit, dare I say, over the top. I mean, maybe not over the top, but I well, mean. Here's what I tell people, because, you know, I, I teach and I always tell my students in film and, te film and, and television acting, just talk to the person. Just talk to the person as if they were just sitting right next to you. Mm. And if you just talk to the person, then it comes out very conversational. And it's not acting. Because the last thing anybody wants to see is someone acting. Mm. The quickest way for me to check out of watching anything is if I see someone acting and not really being in the moment and not really listening to what what's being said to them. But I want to kind of piggyback on something that you said about... You, you know, you, you didn't know how you were going to remember all these lines. So this one man show that I did. Oh, I can't imagine. My wife, I mean, it, it was incredible the amount of dialogue I had to learn. My wife came to see the show and she loved it. And she says, she asked me, she says, tell me something. How is it that you can remember all these lines, but I send you to the store to get three things and you come back with one? I started laughing even before you finished that story. <laughs> and I said, well, baby, perhaps you should put it in the form of a script. <laughs> and I remember. Oh, my. It's, it's a small world. We all share yeah, it is. But than, you know, than, than look, we think. Oh, but you, look, on a serious note, you know, as you get older, the memory is not the same. And oh, it, yeah. takes you, it takes you a while longer to to uh, remember things. And, but uh, that show, uh, I want to do again. Uh, there was some interest um, last year from a Broadway producer and possibly bringing the show up to New York. So oh, let's keep our fingers crossed on that. Yeah, please do. Yeah, please keep me in your prayers on that one. Um, and, and one uh, show I wanted to ask you about, because, gosh, I would love to see this, and I know you've done it several times. Um, Driving Miss Daisy, you've done that as a yes. play, right? With I've with done, Michael Lerner, I think was the My, Michael Lerner, Michael Lerner, who was the who Michael Lerner, who was the mother on the Waltons. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, was, was I, that a, was that a good experience? Oh, that was a great experience. I probably have done 
12 different productions of that show, hmm. mostly with her. But I did do one production of that play in Canada at the Manitoba Theater Center with Karen Grassley, who was the mother on Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> so I jokingly said, I've had my prairie run, you know, with, with women, man. But Michael and I, uh, we first did the play in 2004 at the Rubicon Theater in uh, Ventura, California. And subsequently, we've done productions of it in Kansas City. Uh, we've done productions of it uh, and at, uh, at Laguna, Laguna, Laguna Beach Playhouse. We've done productions of it in Jacksonville, Florida. We've done productions of it in uh, Virginia. And Michael and her husband, uh, John, we're very good friends because when we evacuated in 2005 for Hurricane Katrina, uh, we went back to L.A. because I knew I could get work there. Right. In the first couple of months, we stayed in a hotel that FEMA was paying for. And then uh, I remember, I never will forget this. I got a call from Michael's husband one day, John. He said, uh, I'm picking you and your wife up and we're going to have dinner tonight. So he picks us up from the uh, hotel. And while we're sitting there having dinner, he says, look, Michael and I already talked. You guys are moving in with us and we don't want to hear any discussion about it. And so we stayed with them for about three months until we found uh, a place up in Altadena uh, to stay in. Yeah, so they're, they're family, man. And I told her anytime, I said, anytime you want to do the show, I said, I don't care if we're doing the show in our freaking wheelchairs in our 80s. I'll be, <laughs> instead of pulling up in a car, I'll be pulling in my wheelchair. Miss Daisy, you ready? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. That's a great story. But that, that play has a wonderful message. It, it has a wonderful message about looking beyond uh, the physical aspects of what we see mm -hmm. uh, in a person and looking at what really counts about that person is their heart and their integrity. And sadly, Frank, I wish, you know, we're still at that place in our country right now, man. I, I, well, you know, and, and I've said this many times, I mean, how is it that we've forgotten Martin Luther King's work? Judge us not by the color of our skin, but by the content of our character. I right. Mean, yeah. I don't know yeah. how that got lost. Or, or, or we were another thing there. that, or another thing that he said: we must learn to live together as brothers or perish as fools. Yeah. Yeah. And that's true too. But anyway, but I love that show, and any chance I get to do the show, particularly if I can do it with Michael, learned that I, I look. Who wouldn't want to perform with a four-time Emmy Award winner? Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh geez, that's a great story though. That's and I look. I hope hope it comes back to our local area because I'll be the first in line to want to see it. Because yes, we I've, I've I've talked to her about trying to get this. You trying to do this play down here, man? And she says she would love to come down here and do the show. So we'll see. Yeah, yeah. Um. Gosh, I have so many questions I want to ask you, but I also want to make sure we play some music as well let's see um we'll go into the uh, another film that you wanted to highlight and and i i must plead ignorance i'm not as familiar with this film as i were the first two uh, the film we're talking about is called purple rain uh and the music was uh, was done by uh i don't know if i'm supposed to say prince or the artist formerly known as prince but um uh you wanted to highlight a couple of those cues tell us a little bit about why you wanted to choose that uh, amongst your favorites today 
Oh, man. Uh, Prince, whose birth name was Prince Rogers Nelson, uh, came out of Minneapolis. Right. Um, his first uh, solo album, I believe in 1978 or 79, was called Dirty Mind. Uh, Prince was a genius. He played six or seven different instruments. He wrote. Uh, he composed music. He primarily was a guitar player. Uh, and out of that Minneapolis Prince stable came several other groups. Mars Day in the Time, uh, two prolific producers, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, who went on to actually produce for Janet Jackson. Um, Prince, in 1984, uh, there was a movie called Purple Rain that Prince had the lead in. And it was a story about a musician uh, that uh, that people didn't really understand his music. They thought he was a little weird and strange and everything. But this, this movie went on to become a huge box office hit. And it catapulted Prince's career from stardom to superstardom. Mm. And then, of course, he never looked back after that. Um, he went on to record and produce for other artists. And tragically, in 2016, he died from an accidental overdose of fentanyl. I know, it's so sad. I mean, it, was, it, was, it was shocking, his death, nobody, because he, uh, he, he, he had suffered really bad back issues for years. Because uh, if you saw the way he performed, you understood why he did. The man used to perform in six-inch high heels. <laughs> And he would be like jumping all over the stage and as a result started developing back problems and then uh, was on pain medication. And then, um, you know, as I said, eventually uh, died unexpectedly from an overdose of fentanyl. But the two songs that I want to highlight from Purple Rain are The Beautiful Ones, which is a ballad, and then the other one is Jungle Love, which is an upbeat dance tune by Morris Day and the Time. And by the way, Morris Day uh, and the Time are still performing even now. You know, you can, yeah, you can, you go online, they, 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 they've been performing all across the United States. And I think the last time I saw them was probably the late 90s. Uh, they were performing at, no, no, actually the early 2000s. They were performing at the uh, Essence Festival at the Superdome, and I went to see them, and they still sound really, really good. I mean, but Prince was a, man, Prince was in a class by himself. And if you look at Prince's, if you listen to Prince's music, and if you're fortunate enough to see a lot of Prince's live performances, you'll realize who his uh, protege was, the, the, the man's, a lot of the man's performances were a lot like the godfather of soul, James Brown, mm. in terms of his dance style, his music and everything. But yeah, Prince, man, you know, I to you, Frank, if you're not familiar with Prince is, at some point, uh, become acquainted with who Prince is. His okay. music was just stellar. Okay. Well, let's have a listen for ourselves. This is again from the film Purple Rain, featuring Prince. The two cues are called uh, The Beautiful Ones and Jungle Love. 
Let's sit back and listen.
You decided to make another bold move in your career, or at least it seemed bold to me at the t- thinking about it. You, uh, you left Los Angeles. You came back to New Orleans. I mean, you had a, a great career going in, in Los Angeles, and you know, I don't want to say guaranteed work, but you certainly had a network and, and a reputation, and then you decided to come back to New Orleans. Talk to me a little bit about uh, wanting to make that bold move. Well, that came about because uh, on a visit here, Christmas of 2001, my wife and I came back and it was apparent to both of us that there was something going on health-wise with my dad and her mother. Our parents were much older than, you know, like our peers' parents. I think at the time, I think at the time my dad was in his uh, upper 80s. My mother-in-law probably was in her uh, lower 80s. So my wife and I made a decision that we needed to come back home to help take care of our parents. Mm-hmm. And so we moved back in 2002, in the summer of 2002. Unbeknownst to either one of us, <laughs> that the month and the year that we moved back here, which was July of 2002, was when the state of Louisiana instituted the entertainment tax credits, the month and the year that we moved back here. The first movie that I auditioned for when we moved back was a movie called Runaway Jewelry with John Cusack. Oh, wow, yeah, um, yeah. And I got a small day player role in that. And a couple of days before I was supposed to shoot, my agent called me up and said, I got bad news, casting director called, they cut your role, but they're gonna pay you for the day. I said, okay. Well, not only did they pay me for the day, but they kept my name in the credits. And as a result, I have been getting residuals on a movie I was never in. What a a great story, holy smokes. (laughs) And that's how it started for me coming back here. and then I started getting, you know, roles in, in, in movies that would come in here. And then, of course, Katrina hit in 05. And I was able to get my family out. And we went back to L.A. because I knew I could get work. And we stayed back in L.A. for about 14 months. And then when I moved, when we moved back here in November of 06, permanently, the first project that I worked on was a little film that some of your listening audience may have heard of called The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. <laughs> I was in only one scene, but it was a very memorable scene. Oh, yeah. uh, and that two minutes, uh, I think it's either two minutes and 47 seconds or three minutes and 47 seconds of, of, of that one scene took my career from being a uh, well, what has he done to owe that guy? And I never looked back after that because that one scene was in every trailer at the movie theaters, mm. was in every trailer that was on TV. When Brad Pitt was making his press junket rounds uh, promoting the film, that's the scene that they showed. Right. The night of the Academy Awards, when they introduced the films that are being nominated, that's the scene that they showed. I got so much free publicity out of that and so much recognition that that one film just was a career changer. And I tell my students all the time 
Don't worry about how many lines you have or do not have. You make the most of whatever you are given. And if you make the most of whatever you are given, your work will stand out and it, it, it'll just, it'll be a career changer for you. And it was for me. Great example. Great example. And that leads me to another question that I had for you that I wanted my listeners to uh, hear about. And that is that uh, not only obviously have you continued to, uh, to act and perform in various films, TV and uh, plays and whatnot, but you also decided... Uh, for some reason, to uh, to take up uh, uh, teaching acting, um, and you're you're very active in that. I, I'm just kind of curious, what was it that went uh, went into your decision to start uh, teaching classes on acting for people that are kind of looking to break into the industry? That actually kind of started uh, back in Los Angeles. Um, there were several agents and managers that. Uh, I used to coach their clients. And so when we moved here and my wife and I started seeing, um, we would go to like to see theater and stuff here and we realized that the, the actors here were just not getting the kind of training that we felt like they needed, particularly if they were trying to segue into film and TV. So we started teaching in, oh, I think oh five, oh, oh six. Yeah, because okay. it was yeah it was post Katrina. We started teaching in '06, and I was one of the first ones here to set up shop as a teacher and to teach a lot of the things that I learned from my days of living and working in Los Angeles. And um, I love I love teaching, man. Uh, I love teaching as much, uh, if not more, than performing, because I realize what having a good teacher and a great mentor means. I didn't have that when I moved to Los Angeles. When I moved to Los Angeles, I didn't know anybody in the industry. I didn't have anybody to mentor me. So as a result, I got scammed. I got scammed several times because I didn't know. Yeah. But I remember making a promise to myself at that time, to myself and actually to God, that when the day came around that I did know what I was doing, that I would try to reach back and try to educate and teach and mentor as many people as I possibly could so that they wouldn't make the same mistakes that I did. At this point, we were uh, running out of time, and I wanted to make sure that we included one more uh, cue that uh, Lance and I had discussed in a pre-interview. Uh, and this is music uh, written by the artist uh, Barry White and the, his Love Unlimited Orchestra. The music is called uh, Love's Theme. Now, it doesn't have a real strong connection to film, uh, but it does have a loose connection to TV. I've heard the music used several times in uh, various ways. The one I remember the most is um, it was actually the theme music for uh, ABC's coverage of uh, golf in the 70s and the 80s. It's a very much a classic kind of a 70s sound, and I hope that you'll enjoy it as much as I do. Uh, and have a listen. So this again is a uh, the song is called Love's Theme, written by Barry White and performed by the Love Unlimited Orchestra.
Well, as we um, as we kind of wrap things up, I'm curious what uh, anything in the pipeline that you want to share with the audience that you maybe got to, that you're working on or might be coming out soon. There's a, I don't know if how many of my the listening audience like horror film, but there's a horror film out now called uh, The Geechee, The which the Buhag story that was playing at the Regal Cinemas. I think it was just released early February. Okay. Um, I, I haven't seen it, but I heard it's really, really good. Uh, that's out. Um, I had a film that came out October of last year with Jamie Foxx and Tommy Lee Jones and Journey Smollett called The Burial, which is now streaming on Amazon Prime. That's uh, a very really good, good, I might film. add. I've, I, I watched it. Very good. Yeah. Really good film. And I would encourage. And actually, Billy's in that, too. Um, okay. I would, I would yeah, you're right. People, yeah, yep, yep, yep. I remember. Yeah, I, would, I would encourage people to watch that. And then um, I'm headed back on stage, the Portland stage where I did the One Man August Wilson piece. They've just contracted me to come up there and do a show called Clyde's, C-L-Y-D-E apostrophe S. Uh, so I'm, I'll, I'll be flying out uh, March 11th to go up there for like seven weeks to do that play. So, oh, wow, okay. You know, things are kind of slow right now in terms of film and TV. We just have not gotten back to the big rush that people thought we were going to get back to once the strike ended. So I'm using this time to go back in what I call feed my soul. Film and television feeds my pocket, theater feeds my soul. <laughs> there you go, there you go. How, how, do, uh, how do people keep in touch with what you've got going on and, uh, and how do they follow they can, you? I'm uh, sure you have a social media presence, I know. People, people can follow me. I'm on Instagram, at Lance E. Nichols. And I'm also on Facebook as Lance E. Nichols. And that's the best way to reach me. Or they can... Uh, Hit me up via email at l n i c h o l six one nine at earthlink.net. Again, that's l nickel six one nine at earthlink.net. And I, I'm, I always look forward to meeting new people and 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 helping new people and trying to assist new people because there's so many people that want to do this. And the only thing that I, I don't have much of a criteria, Frank, my, but my number one criteria is whoever it is that reaches out to me, they have to be self-disciplined and motivated. Uh, I'm not one of those hold your hand kind of teachers. That's not me uh, because there's so many people that really want to do what we do. And so those are the people that I want to try to mentor and help, the people that really, really want it and who are self-motivated. Yeah. Lance, look, I can't, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. I, I don't know about you, but I've just really thoroughly enjoyed our chat today. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. I have, and I'm just glad we finally uh, got a chance to do this because at one point I was thinking, is this going to even happen? Because every time you know it looked like I got a job or something came up on your end, and so I'm glad that it finally did happen, and I can't wait to, to hear it when it does air. Oh, well, good deal. Well, listen, my thanks again to our, uh, our guest, Lance Nichols, for joining us today. Thanks to all our listeners, and in particular to those of you that are happen to be patrons of the program. We, once again, always appreciate your support. In fact, we'll have a short, very uh, a bonus episode for our patrons with Lance here as, that you can look forward to. Uh, but with that, uh, there's not much else to say other than this. 
And that's simply this, that my name's Frank R. Wilson. My time's up. I thank you for yours. Thanks for listening to What's the Score?